With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All righty. Welcome, everybody. This is episode number 40. I can't even believe it. Episode number 40 of Sports Cards Live. I don't know what to say about that other than, uh, as Rich just said to me, did you, did you plan to get to 40 when you started this thing? And I said, you know, I didn't even think about it really. I thought I'll go as long as I can. We'll see what happens, see how long this COVID, things la- this COVID thing lasts. And of course, it's here we go. It's still going and uh, I'm still going. And as I just mentioned to Rich, I don't really plan to stop. Uh, well, we'll just see how long we can keep this thing going for. So I'm having a lot of fun with it still. This is really a fun, uh, it's a fun thing to do. And episode number 40, what more can I say? It's, it's really cool, really cool. So let's get going here. We do have Rich waiting in the back room. We'll bring him out in a couple minutes. As usual, I do want to thank last Wednesday's guest was Ken Golden. And that was an awesome experience to have him on because a few days later, his Mike Trout Superfractor sold or his client's Mike Trout Superfractor sold. And we'll talk about that a little bit later when Rich comes on. I also want to thank Tony Siriani of Upper Deck Product Manager, who joined me this past Saturday. We had a great discussion uh, about everything Upper Deck and what his, what you know what is what goes into building sets. His hobby experience. He was a collector, and now he works in the industry. He got his dream job. Great story. Really cool story about how he got the job too. So check that out. All the old videos. Again, this is number forty. So the last thirty-nine videos, they all live on the YouTube channel. If you have not yet subscribed, I'd really appreciate it if you would. That would be awesome if you consider it. So thank you very much. I also did last Saturday after Tony left us. We came back on half an hour later for the first ever Sports Cards Live After Hours show. My guest was Carlos from the Because I'm Carlos YouTube channel. We had a very laid-back, relaxing conversation. It was a lot of fun. Check it out and check out Carlos's uh, YouTube channel Because I'm Carlos. This Saturday, the guest, I'm still scheduling the guest for this Saturday, but we have another after hours planned for Saturday late night. My guest is going to be a young vintage collector by the name of Charles who's going to join me. So that should be a lot of fun. When I say young, I mean he's 14 years old and he's he loves his vintage. So that'll be a really cool chat. We're just going to hang out, talk hobby with you guys and see where it goes. Next Wednesday, super collectors of monumental patches the urschel brothers will be joining me that's going to be a fun collector kind of oriented episode so check that out next wednesday as well i'm looking forward to that one uh, i want to mention hey guys thank you so much we did break the 1000 subscriber level uh over the past few days so that's pretty cool really happy about that thanks everybody who has already subscribed always thanking you so really appreciate it again if you're new to the show please please subscribe as always Um, tonight, as always, comments and questions will be in play. So we will be addressing most and most everything that comes through the, through the stream and, uh, Rich and I will be addressing those. And, um, I want to also mention there is now, I got an email for sports cards live. A few people said I should have an email. So I grabbed an email here. I'm going to put it up on the bottom. Now, if anyone ever wants to get a hold of me with guest ideas or topic ideas or anything you want to you want to talk about if you're not already communicating with me on on facebook twitter instagram you can always send me an email sportscardsliveshow at gmail.com of course sports cards live was already taken 
And finally, I wanted to, this is kind of funny, um, two comments that were left on a couple of videos over the last few days. And I wanted to share them with you because I got, I, I'm just going to bring them up. So here we, uh, let's do it this way. Here we go. This comment was left by True Dang. This was just today. He writes, you talk too much, get to the point. We don't have all day, which I could have taken that the wrong way, but I actually got a good chuckle out of it. I thought it was pretty funny and uh, I'm going to respond. I'm going to say, man, that, that's the funniest comment I've ever received. So thanks for tuning in. But I'll share this one as well. This was a really nice one from JC. Bravo. I have, I have to save all the videos I've watched on YouTube for the past year. This is the only one where my intention and viewing was kept for the duration of this two hour interview. Great work and very informative. So thanks to JC. Truly appreciate that. And he was referring to the episode with uh, Jeremy Murray from Beckett Grading Services. So that was ni nice to get a couple of uh, of comments like that, but I want to contrast the two. I thought that was was pretty funny. So let's get on with it. Let's bring out tonight's guest. Right now we have with us Rich Klein. Rich, welcome to episode number 40 of Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. This is past my bedtime. So, hey, we'll never know what stories are going to come out when it's this <laughs> late for me. Well, I'm uh, I'm glad that you're able to join tonight, Rich. Um, you know, as always, I like to explain to everybody sort of how it came to be that you're on the show. So, you know, I, I don't even remember exactly. I, I probably, we were communicating on Facebook and I said, hey, would you like to be a guest on the show? And you graciously accepted. We set the date. Here you are. You know, I've seen you on other programming, which we'll talk about later. I want to give a couple shout outs to, to, to the, the, the various channels that you're on regularly. Um, but we'll do that a little bit later. But um, you're also somebody who, you know, I've been a, a regular um, visitor to Sports Collectors Daily, the website, and I've seen your writings on there back from, you know, I think 2011 to 2015. You were doing call, you were doing blogging on that site, and now you do it on the GTS website on, under uh, Klein's Corner. You had Rich's Ramblings, now you have Klein's Corner. So that's my familiarity with you. And based on seeing your name, and your your various logos. I thought this is a guy who knows people. He's in the hobby. He's he's a veteran. He's a stalwart of the hobby. And um, I thought, what a, what a, what a you know? It's nice to get somebody who has so much experience on the show more more than myself, more than many of our viewers. And I thought, what a great opportunity to bring you on. So that's kind of what led to it. Is that kind of your recollection of yeah, coming on, or do you have anything? Good. Good. You interviewed our owner Tim Getz, and I don't think I made any comments that night. But then I think you also interviewed my former owner, Jim Beckett. And I think I made a couple comments that night, you know, and yeah. we went from there. And we have obviously some mutual friends who, who post on this. And it's fun. And you said, and I can be loquacious. And so you probably heard of one or two of my interviews and said, yeah, he can go for an hour or two. Yeah. And I will give you a, you know, as I said, this is late for me. So I will give you a hand signal like, uh, this is it, you know, okay. but, um, well, we have, we have several things that I want to get through tonight. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot that's happened even since we met last night and went through a few things. There's stuff has happened. I want to talk about a bunch of things. We've got, I want to go through the usual sort of topics before we jump in though, Rich, let's say hello to the, to the viewers that we have with us right now. And then we're going to jump in. We're going to get a, a quick summary of kind of your, 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 your history, how you got from, you know, the beginning of the hobby through to where we are today. And then we're going to bounce, bounce through a bunch of other topics. So card currency in the house card, happy to be here tonight, ready to learn some things. Yes. We have some experience in the house tonight. Slobs. Welcome to the show. Good evening to you, Ziggy. Hey, Ziggy. I, we see Ziggy all the time on Hobby Hotline, too. Well, so it's good to see Ziggy. 
He says, hello, Rich. Good evening, sir. Paul Cashman, good evening as always. Ziggy says the after hours is awesome. Just more great content. Thank you, Ziggy. I really appreciate that. I, and especially from you who reviews hobby content regularly. So thank you so much. Absolute, welcome to the show. Just watched after hours tonight. It was great. Thank you so much. It's funny. After hours has more views than the regular episode did on Saturday. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Tim Marin, welcome to the show, Tim. I saw you sent me, you tagged me on a question on Facebook. I'll get back to you on that a little bit later, but I don't think I have much to add about that particular Gretzky autograph. Absolute, Jeremy, I missed the show last Saturday. You didn't mention hitting the thumbs up button. Not to worry, I got you tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Absolute. I appreciate that. Ziggy says, best interview with show in the hobby with the best interviewer. Man, thank you. Uh, I'm going to start blushing here, guys. Steve Elmore, welcome to the show, Jeremy, my guy. I love it. Georgetown, welcome. Definitely always thumbs up. Thank you so much. Jason Pringle, good evening to you, my friend. Hey, Rich, welcome to the marathon of live sports card shows. Yes, sir. Rich, anything good in the boxes behind you? It's uh, we'll Yes. Yes. <laughs> we'll talk about that, but yes. But it's not as good as some of the stuff we've had in the past. Exactly. Okay. Paul says, love it. Could be a chalk loquacious. Adam D. Congrats. Thank you, Adam. Much appreciated. Very happy to get there. Barry Mom, a man. Welcome to the show. Welcome hey, to the show, Canada, buddy. Comsi, you need to be the next guest. Yeah, there we talked no about it. That's available for you. We talked about it last night, Barry Rich and I, about getting you on. And we'll, we'll see if we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll have to have a chat, Barry. It'd be great to have you. Paul says, could be a challenge to get future guests to stay lo loquacious. <laughs> and Steve says, soccer is as hot as it gets. First it was basketball, now it's all about soccer. Soccer is hot. I saw a lot of that today. What's up at Ziggy? All right. And Barry says, no, not coming no, on the Barry, show. I'm going to change your mind. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. Rich, I always want any of my viewers uh, and people in the audience who don't maybe aren't familiar with you, to get familiar with a guest. So can you take us through a little bit about your history, um, starting with, you know, you you started out as a, as a collector, you set up at some shows, you worked for Beckett, you worked for, I'll let you do it. Why don't you take us through? Okay, and I'll try not to do the 18 minutes my former teammate Grant uh, at Beckett Grand Sandground did one night. Yeah. On show. We have lots to get through, so I, I appreciate it. <laughs> so, but I actually, my to give a little back, my father had been a, best pocket stamp and coin dealer way back in the day before I was ever born. So I probably got the collector gene from him. And I started collecting baseball cards like most of us did, eight years old, nine years old. And I never really stopped. There were a couple minor breaks, but for the most part, I never really stopped. And then about the age of 16, 17, 1977, I really got into the hobby. Within two years, I acquired so much stuff, I started setting up at shows. It was an interesting experience. I did pretty well. I just had a lot of cards. In those days, you made in those days there wasn't really a price guide. Jim had not a, not a formal book or even a magazine. It was just loose pricing, and you made it up as you went. So I know I sold stuff way too cheap. And when I did shows, I enjoyed shows. I did them when I was in college. Uh, one of my other hobby mentors, Frank Barning, had started using me to do some stuff for Baseball Hobby News, which is probably how I got to Jim's attention. And I tell the story that in 1984, I officially, as far as I know, Jim says it's he thought he had met me before, and the place he thought he had met me before, I hadn't been at. So <laughs> he's usually pretty good, but that one he was not right on. But I, but it's a better story now to tell him I met him, the apocryphal story, I met him on a softball field in Parsippany, New Jersey. Okay. It is true 
we did play softball that day as part of the national. We'll talk about that as part of national changes later. And six and a half years later, I get an offer to work for Beckett. I was still doing shows. I'd become a full-time dealer in the 80s. I always looked at things a little bit differently. And then I worked at Beckett full-time through 2007. And then I did some contracts that lasted through 2009. Then I went back to the real world. I worked for Bank of America. And during the time of Bank of America, I was fortunate enough to get another gig writing for Sports Collectors Daily. Eventually, I, honestly, I burnt out writing. I still talk to Rich now all the time. I think we trade emails once or twice a week usually. And then Bank of America outsourced my job. And I posted one day, well, well I'm between jobs. You can see how I can multitask by doing that. And I get an email from Tim Getz. I had met Tim six and a half years earlier. And owner owner to- and founder of founder and president of ComSeed. Right. And if you go back to my Beckett story with meeting Jim officially in 2014, Six and a half years later, I go working for Jim Beckett. Well, six and a half years later, it's a six years and change. I go working for Tim Getz. I mean, it's it's Harry Chapin, and you'll hear the story about that later as part of how I should have been fired on the spot. Harry Chapin has a place in that has all my life's a circle. And so I ended up at ComC. And, you know, my job has evolved this year. My job really involves three things during the day now, what I do at ComC. We get a lot of correction requests from the ComC nation. I do a bunch of them in the morning. Then I was IDing cards, and then I was doing a fastidious set-by-set review of the database. Right now, as swamped as we are, I still do step one and step two. The database work, hopefully someday we can get back to for step three. But right now, I'm spending most of my time as most of the ID team is, IDing cards trying to help us catch up because we'll get to this. Like most entities in the hobby, we fell behind because we just got so swamped. We are, it's a blessing to be so popular. Yeah. So it's also a bit of a curse in some ways that no matter how many people you hire, it's really hard to catch up and we're doing our, our best to do that. Good, good to hear. I'm sure you are. I know, I know Tim, Tim, I, I believe Tim runs a good business. So I think that's great. And you guys are, I've seen posts, you're hiring people and getting things done. So great to hear. Can you tell us, uh, I'm curious, what did you do at Beckett for those six, uh, for six and a half years for, for close to 20 years? What was your I job there? I was a price guide department the whole time. Say again? I was a price guide analyst the whole time or technically for the last 15 years, a price guide editor. For but what? Did, all, all sports, all price I did, guides? I did, it was funny. I was originally hired to do hockey, but that was something I wasn't quite capable of doing at that time. So I ended up doing football and then we hired somebody better in football. So then I just did half football, half baseball. Then I ended up doing some bas- vintage basketball too. So I was doing three magazines. I was also the primary person to work on all the annual guides. And then my, my role evolved where for the last about 10 years I was there, I edited the Beckett Almanac of Baseball Cards and Collectibles, and we took it from, we made it into quite the volume. I mean, I would go in most Saturdays, I'd work on it. It was, you know, the work I did was nights and weekends. Okay, okay, and cool. It was probably the most profitable thing I did because books weren't that expensive and we were selling, we would sell out every year of the books. So in fact, when I'd have to send books to get their, what we called reviews, 
for people to make corrections or note pricing or, hey, you need to add this or this. We ran out of books a few times. I think maybe half the years we didn't have any books to send those people. So uh, that was a good problem to have. Okay. 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 Good to know. I, I wasn't sure exactly what you did there. So I'm glad to, to get filled down on that. Charles, want to say hello to Charles, who's out there. Charles will be joining me on After Hours on Saturday. And Charles is a young young guy who collects vintage, as I mentioned earlier. So that'll be nice and relaxing. And a nice eye-opener for everyone out there who thinks there's no kids in the hobby. I think we're starting to realize there are. And I don't mean to refer to you as a kid, Charles. You're a teenager, but it's still great to have. It will be great to have you on and get that uh, that perspective and see Jared, what, you know, maybe talk about what we can do to attract more youngsters to the hobby. What's that, Rich? Jeremy, to me, you're a kid. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you were lying to me about your age, I'm actually not that much younger than you, Rich. No, you're not. <laughs> Austin Olson, good evening to you. Thank you for joining. Okay, Rich, so I want... I got to admit, like I had Dr. James Beckett on, on the show not too long ago. He was a wonderful guest, such a such a neat guy to have on. Obviously, someone we're all familiar with. Can you just take a minute or two and just like, what was it work? What was it like working with Jim, working at Beckett for Jim? And then I also want you to talk about what was it like when the transition occurred that he decided to and the whole process began of selling the company? Because I know that's not just an overnight thing. These things take time. Can you speak to also? Working with him and now selling the him selling the company. Yeah, I mean, Jim is a good, decent man. And and as I was telling you before the show, we have a taped Jim Beckett thing in, in his thing about and I and I call it why his faith was so important to him. And it was the most intense one we ever did, but I think it really shows why he's such a good man that that episode we did. Because Which hasn't been released yet, correct? It has not been released. I wish he would. It's To me, it's the best episode. When I say the best, I think it was really a very revealing chat we both had that day okay. about why things that made him a really good owner. You know, he, like you and me, you want to play with the cards. Yeah. And he's talked about this, how he ended up doing more CEO work at, you know, for the last 10 years or five years or when he got, when he recovered, recovered and started doing more things after 1999 from his heart attack than actually pricing cards, you know, which is his, which is one of his loves in a spare time hobby. And I think part of being a CEO, and I actually went through this with my brother-in-law too. My brother-in-law just sold his company a couple weeks ago and the processes are remarkably similar. Somebody approached, they, you know, they did it quietly. Jim did tell us during the process, I, we have act, we have somebody very active and looking. He's not going to give us the details as employees and he's not going to say it's official until it's official, but he made sure that we understood that there was a chance this was going to happen. My brother-in-law did it basically as a surprise. What he did was, you know, he, his, we'll call it his version. Jim did of a tribute episode to his executive assistant Carol Carol Weaver the other the other day and Carol was Jim's executive assistant so so we'll call this person Neil's Carol my, my brother-in-law's name Neil his okay. Carol I think and so first he and his wife and their co-owners of the business and they 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 got a process they started talking yeah it's a good time then they had to have I think her name's Elizabeth. 
you know, who's sorry, is Elizabeth work for Jim or for your brother? No, he works for, she works for Neil. Okay. Okay. But they had Elizabeth do the financials, you know, and make sure that she got all the numbers ready for the people who wanted to buy Neil's company. Jim, um, Jim had a really good CPA by the name of Chuck Robinson. Chuck ran a very strict ship. I guarantee you the numbers were good. Okay. And it's a similar process. And as they get going, more people get brought in to what's going on so you know what's happening. And, you know, when it becomes official, both Jim and my brother-in-law, Neil, told their employees it's now official. So what was the general sentiment amongst the employees at the time at Beckett? I, uh, No offense, but don't really, you know, Neil's business isn't in the sports car. Unless he's in the sports car business, I'll well, have on another time. Business. He owns a few sports car stuff, but he's not in the sports car okay. So just talk about talk about Jim when Jim when Jim made the announcement. I'm just curious the transition. What did it what did it look like at in the offices that day? The next few days was it was it a was it were people sad? Were they happy? Were they not sure what to expect? First, we were a lot happier a few days later because Jim was very gracious and gave us all significant bonuses as part of what he sold the company for. That's nice, and I mean good bonuses really good money. I mean, he didn't have to do it. Yeah. The New York Times reported the sale at 23 million. So I can say that number without violating any confidence because you can research that in the New York Times archives. Yeah. And but he gave us all bonuses. There had been a guy hired from what I was told there was a guy hired to work in the warehouse like 2 weeks before he sold the company. And I was told that guy got a $1000 bonus. Very nice. I mean, that tells you that you know what Jim really was like. Yeah. And then he sold it to a private equity firm. But were people sad to see him go rich? Were they very, sad? Very, very sad, especially if you'd been there for a while. And did he just leave or was he transitioned out? Like, did he stick he, around he, for a few like, months? Or? And I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to bring up, it's very similar to my brother-in-law. He got a two-year thing to, to transition. We were in a, this amazing building. And we were on, let's say, one side of the building, and Jim was now on the other side of the building, the same place he'd always been. Yeah. So he was still in the building. And you could see him if you needed to or something. And the new CEO, a very nice man by the name of Peter Goodmanson, would go and talk to Jim and get his input and advice on things. And they happened to know each other. And Jim may have actually, according, I don't know if it was mentioned in his episode or mentioned somewhere else, but Peter was actually a person Jim was interested in and in eventually transitioning into a leadership role from where he had been anyway. Okay. So it was a natural progression to do that. But Makes for those sense. of us who knew Jim for a long time, it was very sad only because we knew the family atmosphere would never be the same again. And that's, that's a good place to end that question right there, because that that's kind of what I wanted to, what I wanted to get at was the, I want to get a, 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 an idea for the loyalty that the employees had to Jim and um, and any and the loyalty back as well as when he left. So I think that's that's well explained. So thank you for that. Oh, can I add one more story to that? You can. In 1998, Beckett Publications had had a couple of very rough years, and people who had been used to getting bonuses during the good years, you know, they they were very concerned because you know. I believe 96 and 97 Beckett publications lost money. I think 98, it was close to either making money or breaking even. But, you know, it was a tough time in the hobby. Yeah. 
and the morale was very low. We're going to get bonuses. You know, people had gotten really used to it. And we had an annual state of the company breakfast or a meeting in what we called the, we'll call it the social hall, the ballroom, a beautiful room, tons of room to do things. At that reception, at that breakfast meeting, they, they serve breakfast. So at that breakfast, we'll call it a breakfast meeting, but you ate at your chair. At the breakfast meeting, Jim makes an announcement. I believe in you all. And as you go back and then you met with your individual managers, he, the manager, he or she would ha handed you a check. Jim, out of his own pocket, gave hundreds of thousands of dollars of bonuses because he want he didn't want he wanted everybody to stay. Yeah, he didn't want people to leave. You know, it was like a very impactful thing where people realized this is going above and beyond, yeah. and that was what Jim was like. He would go above and beyond to make sure he took care of you. That's wonderful. And that is a story where we all got really good money. Yeah, that's but great. It was more that he wanted to give. That's nice. That's really nice to hear. Well, thanks for sharing that to, to finish that line of discussion up. I appreciate it. Before we before we get to some questions, and I really like uh, Ziggy's got a great question in there. There's a There's a couple others. But before we get there, I want you to tell the story now because you've been teasing with me with this for two days about the time that you should have, that, that if you were the boss, you would have fired yourself on the spot by the sounds of it. So what happened? Why should you have been fired on the spot? Okay. And, and how did you not get fired that day? It's a Friday morning, like 8.30, 8.45 on a Friday morning. And we had pretty big cubes, cubicles. It was pretty private. And I was playing a Harry Chapin CD that's live in some venue in New York, taped in 1981. We lost Harry later that year. And Harry Chapin had a fun song, barely hit the top 40, called W-O-L-D, which is about the travails of a radio disc jockey. Okay. And the end of the line is, I am the morning DJ at W-O-L-D. Well, in local, he always would use a local radio station. And I'm singing along, I know all the words. I am, and so he goes, I am the local D, you know, I am the morning DJ at number at 92 WKTU playing disco bullshit for you. <laughs> and I did warn you that we would use that word. Well, I'm wailing away with those words disco bullshit. And our one of our vice presidents, Margaret Steele, is walking at that precise second past my cube with five people in suits. Oh. <laughs> How I did not even get talked to on that one. You know, I, you know, there were things you, you didn't do wrong. You're saying you're getting talked to. That yeah. one, Rich, uh, by the way, you know, those people are doing this and this. They were very important. And you um, really screwed this up and you're gone. I never heard of it. Here you are cussing as we're giving a tour to our guests. Yeah. What? Here you are cussing as we're giving a tour to our guests. You know, no, no more music. No more music during work hours, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, you know, uh, now I'm in... That's pretty funny. I didn't know you, you you alluded to it last night when we were chatting. So, um, I, I, but I said, I said I, to, to everybody, what I said to Rich, don't tell me the story. I want to hear it for the first time tomorrow night. So that's pretty funny. Okay. Let's move along here. I do want to talk a bit about ComC. Uh, really, I want, I want to talk about, you know, how you got involved. And I want you to speak to the evolution of ComC, both, uh, you know, in terms of its national presence and, and the business itself. But before we do, Ziggy has a question, which does kind of tie in. He says, Rich, 
What do you think about eBay as the modern price guide? Does ComC provide or sell their sales data like eBay does? Can you speak to that? You know, I'm not entirely positive. I know that uh, my friend M. John, there's things called history points and there's ways you can see what stuff sells for at ComC. I frankly don't worry about that as part of my job. I know that sounds weird. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing analyst work, but I guess it is in a way ComC with those histories and I think you pay for it. So in a way, yes, ComC does provide and sell some of their sales data. Some of it is on top and some of it, you know, if you sold Mike Trout cards in 2013, there's nowhere near where they are today. Yeah, it's almost so irrelevant. It's just not for, going to be really accurate, you know. Right, it's just interesting, but it's not really relevant that old data anymore. But what do you think specifically, Rich? About you know, back when before the internet, when the Beckett magazine came out, that was our only price guide. You know, there were there was tough stuff and SCD and some others that came and went. But um, what do you you know? Considering that we can get pretty much real-time sales data by looking up completed listings or sold listings on eBay, never mind ComC because ComC is its own, is a different, uh, a totally different platform and environment. But but on eBay, you can go see what card sold for ten minutes ago, going back about three months, and that's what a lot of people in the hobby are using now as their value reference over the Beckett magazine, over the Beckett online, over whatever other price guides are out there. How do you feel about that? Do you think that that's the way to go now? Or do you think there's still value to the published price guides? I think there's a ton of value to the published price guide. I think because not everything shows up on eBay. True. And there's stuff that you, it's a good guide. It's not a Bible. We even said that back in the day. But that was one of the reasons during the peak of the hobby, when the before the internet, when I got there in 1990 through about 93, 94, we were spending upwards of $90,000 a year to send analysts all around the country to do shows, including the national. And we would walk around shows and see, act, try to see actual physical transactions, see what was selling, talk to the market makers, learn what you were doing. So we eventually came up with a regional correspondence network where we could talk to people. I had a phone regional correspondence network I could talk to. I knew most of the breakers from the New York area. I'd get on the phone and I'd talk to them. And so they all wanted us to have the, the most accurate pricing. Today, yes. And, you know, you can get older prices. There's a, there's a site called WorthPoint where if you pay the money, you can get Sales 20 years ago, worth point is wonderful for that. Yeah. So as far as as far as current, I'm talking current data. Is there, in your opinion, is there anything that rivals eBay's sold listings to get current data? I don't think so in terms of absolute last, you know, up to the date minute, but it also depends what market you're in. Sure. If you're doing high-end vintage, you're gonna look at completed sales and auctions. You had Kenny Golden on. Kenny's, Kenny's got high-grade vintage that shows up in his auctions. You're going to have to see what it's sold in Kenny's auction. Yeah, You're going to have to see what it's sold in those auctions. So on a you know global level, yes, but on a granular level, it has to do with what exactly are you looking to get data on. There's some stuff where the Beckett database is as good as anything else. Yeah. There's some stuff where ComC, if you – if you get into the history, it's as good as anybody else. There's stuff eBay is probably more of it as yeah. good as everybody else. There's stuff the high high end auction houses are good on. There's stuff the middle end auction 
There's so much information available. There may be too much information available. I know that sounds weird to say, but there's, you can get information. And now there's new tools coming out. It could be, it can be overwhelming at times. Simon, Simon Meredith says, I still use my Beckett plus for what all, for what all the inserts and pack odds were from the, for sets from the nineties. That's a good, that's a great resource for that kind of thing, for sure. Let's just go back a little bit. Um, so I mentioned earlier that we have uh, on Saturday on After Hours, I have, I have youngster Charles joining me. And so um, we had uh, Steve Elmore says, I really feel bad for young kids trying to break into the hobby. It's insanity, right? That's insanity for all of us, though. I mean, I go look at cards that you could have bought two months ago for 200. Now they're $800. Like it, we'll get to that a little bit later. We talk about that all the time. It's a little bit crazy. That's for sure. Um, he's Charles says, yeah, Steve, it was hard, but I've been doing it since I was nine. That's pretty cool. Since he was nine. I just want to see what Steve says back. Cause it's interesting to see the commentary between the viewers, especially when it has to do with uh, an upcoming show we're having. So Steve says, welcome, Charles. I'm 47 was big from like 85 to 92. Then junk wax took over. I, I dibbled, I dabbled and dibbled in 1988 again in 2007. Now it's been about a year and I'm back strong, my friend. Good luck. And Charles says, Hey, it's good to hear. Hopefully you stay good place to be for sure for sure i want to say uh welcome to ernie welcome to the show tom appreciate the congrats on 1000 that was a, a big milestone to reach i'm really happy about that so thank you for the shout out on that so rich tell us a little bit about um you mentioned earlier in the intro but tell it again we've had more people join us now how did you actually get the job at com c how did how did you know tim from before and uh, tell us a bit about how ComC's evolved over the past uh, five years. Okay. I first met Tim at the 2010 Baltimore National. I was looking for a hobby job, even though I, at that time I'd gotten, finally gotten a job. You know, I got hit by the recession like a lot of other people. And I went to Tim at those days, by the way, you need me. Because with my database experience, I go, you need me. Yeah. We're okay. They had to deal with Beck and I'm thinking, no, you need me. And... I was actually, they realized about a few months later, I would then start doing some consulting work, like helping on figuring out where these weird cards really came from. Now, as good as they are, and my manager, the nice man by the name of Charles, is better. He's he's where I was, let's say, when we started the Beckett Almanac in terms of age, give or take. And he's better than I am at that point. So he's really good. But there's stuff Charles doesn't know. So he'd ask me, and I say, yeah, and especially because Dr. Beckett sends stuff in. A lot of times it was Dr. Beckett. A lot of times I either knew what it was or I'm the one that bought it for the company. And Jim got to keep his cards when he sold the company so I could identify what the cards were. And then there were other things that came up and I would do research and I would figure out whether, you know, what it was and where it came from. So I did I did stuff for ComC for years that way. I did research and I got paid in store credit, which was perfectly fine by me. You know, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was fun store credit. Yeah. And then, you know, but I was still working for Bank of America and that's really good benefit. So I'm not going to, you know, mess that. But when the job got outsourced, as I mentioned, I posted on LinkedIn because I was actually going to networking classes and I was out there and I'm looking for the job. And the funniest thing was even after I started working at ComC, I was still getting calls, legitimate calls for legitimate jobs. Three, four months later, after I got a job, people were still saying, are you still available? Uh, no. Oh, by the way, now I have an office by myself. Do you want to match the office and flexible hours? What do you mean? Well, those That's not what it is. So, right. uh, okay. So all of them, the minute they heard about office by myself and flexible hours, a lot of those people went away real quickly. <laughs> 
but I had posted, hey, now, you know, now that I'm between jobs, if you want to see how I can multitask something at the show, well, that night I get an email from Tim. You're available. Uh, yeah, and now that the Beckett loss, the Beckett lawsuit against Compsy had been totally settled, he didn't feel uncomfortable bringing me along, and that's how we did it. But the thing was, just when the Beckett lawsuit started, I had actually gone out to Redmond, and we actually had kind of informal interviews. I met a bunch of the people on the staff. We couldn't do a lot because he was concerned because I knew still knew a lot of people at Beckett, so he was concerned about what I could and couldn't see, which is perfectly fine. Sure. And it was actually, I brought my wife with me. It was her spring break. So we went on vacation. It's the closest thing to a honeymoon we've ever really taken. <laughs> Seattle, Washington. My wife got a, a, a ticket for driving the wrong way down a one-way street that took years to get off her record, but that's a different story. <laughs> and, but we had a really good week in Seattle, Washington. And when I got there, the company was like 40, 45 people. When I got to Beckett, it was like 50 people. And everything was housed in one building. It was one office building. It was a, in, you know, in an industrial area. Well, this year, ComC is going to hire more people during the course of 2020 than were, than were employed when I went out in 2014 to meet the staff. Yeah. That's so pretty it's <laughs> And so it's growing. It's growing. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're trying to keep up. I mean, I know PSA is looking to hire 100 people. I mean, they're trying to catch up desperately. You know, I, I have a good friend of mine that works at PSA, and we were talking the other day, and he mentioned, you know, when Joe Orlando and Steve Sloan talk about it, you know, their primary goal is to clean up the backlog. That's That almost comes up almost every day in meetings. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to be behind. Beckett Mead, Beckett grading fell behind before all this. And then the COVID regulations, you know, especially where ComC is in Washington, is really strict. You could have, as Tim mentioned, I believe it was on your show, he wants to have three shifts. But you can have only so many people in the building at one time. Right, right. And so if you're getting a 500-card order... You know, that's going to take one person a lot of time. You can't have three people pulling at the same time. You may only have one person pulling cards. And if you only have one person pulling cards, I don't care how fast you are and how easy it is to find, there's still the physical thing of doing it. So, yeah. It, and that's one of the problems. We're trying desperately to catch up. Yeah, of course. I, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Okay, well, I, I, just, I just wanted to get a little bit of a story about how you got the job at ComC and kind of what you've seen happen. So the growth is, is encouraging. It's great to hear. Uh, it's nice to know that the company keeps on keeps on going. I, I, and you mentioned store credit, being paid in store credit was fun. I, I've been a, I've been an, a user of ComC since 2013. And so I've, I've enjoyed my store credit coming and going many, many times over the last seven years or whatever it's been. And um, I, I love, there, there's nothing like going and spending your store credit. And I very rarely have actually put money in. I've only put cards in, uh, cards I don't really care so much about anymore. And, you know, so that I can sell for cheap, anywhere from 25 cents to some more expensive, but, you know, usually lower end cards. And I'm, I'm really converting those cards into personal collection cards that are worth a bit more. So I've had, a, I've had great, I think my, I've sold like, 2,000 cards and I bought like 200, that kind of thing. The numbers, it's more like 5,000 and maybe 200, but it's uh, it's neat to look at the ratio between cards sold and cards bought, knowing that 
the money has really been equal all the way through. So I, I love my, my ComC store credit. Uh, Steve Elmore makes a comment. I'm sure some kids can, or some, I'm sure some can relate. I will never forget how Beckett was king back in the day. And I was so excited to open each issue and couldn't wait to look through to see those up arrows. Yeah. The up arrows, the hot list, all those things. Same, same here, Steve. I'm sure a lot of us who, who go back that far remember that. And even, I mean, they still do the up arrows. I think they still do the up arrows to be honest. I, I haven't really looked at a Beckett in quite some time, but I'm sure they do. If I do, I, I, I usually can, find values in other ways. Uh, Ziggy says, ComC is the original trading platform. As Jeremy said, send what you don't want and get what you do. Yeah, that's that's what I use it for, for sure. It's a good way to, it's a good way to take the cards that you have that are not, in my opinion, they're just not worth the time to list on eBay and sell for anywhere from $2 or less, even $5 or less. To me, it's just not worth the time, but you want them to get into the right hands still because people want them for their sets, for their player sets, their team sets, whatever it is. So getting them out there, I think, is important as a service to our fellow collectors. And ComC provides that platform for that as just among other things, for sure. Okay. As a user, as a ComC user, I have lanes that I that I send cards from. You know, like you have certain things. I have certain lanes I use to send cards from as things come or like this weekend at the card show, I was digging through a dime box or a quarter box. And there are certain cards after I check them out when I get home. Okay, no, they're going to they're going to go in the comp C pile. There are other cards that are going to go into my sale box. And there are other cards that will go into deep inventory. And there are other cards that are going to go into my quarter Hall of Famer boxes. So yeah. there are, you know, I try to have lanes for everything I buy. Yeah, I agree. Silos almost uh, and yeah. ways of dealing with them. Yeah. Michael Kohler says, especially when you sell me your port, he's speaking to me because he bought he bought my port out. I don't know. How long ago was that, Mike? Probably three or four years ago now. That was a that was a nice influx of store credit into my account. And then I continue to do submissions. I my thing is I submit to Com C at shows. Oh, I never mail it in. I submit at whether it's at the National, the Expo, the Summit in Edmonton. I, I always, Barry always comes to see me at the end of the show to make sure that I give him, I have my submission for him. And uh, it's always, uh, it's always great because it takes a little while, but once they're in there and you price them out, they get, they get to, they get to find the, their new better home. Jump in, please. I want to point out that the last two nationals, even before we, you know, got influx this year, the last two nationals each time we shattered previous records of the moving boxes being sent back to Redmond, Washington with stuff we had a cube, you know, we had been given at the show to sell on the site. I think last year it was about 60 big moving packing boxes went back to Washington, you know, shattering what we had done the year before in Cleveland, which had shattered what we had ever done before. Yeah. So, we have been on the uptick of getting cards and even before this year. So, I mean, and I don't want to too, too much of my horn because Barry does more of it than I do, but yeah. you know, talking to dealers, which I'm, which I'm known to do, I am sure really helped too. You know, it's like, okay, Rich is there. I feel comfortable. I know he, yeah. I know oh. something happens. He, he's going to, you know, have my, have my back, so to speak. And I do, there's a, I tell anybody, my friends, you ever have something, Make sure you copy me on the on the writing comp C. They always respond to all the people on the on the emails. So this yeah, way, I mean, you're you're a you're a very well known entity within the hobby. And I think Tim Getch in bringing you on, 
I think he's a pretty savvy guy. You know, he knows that he's going to not, not only do you have your database experience and your, your card experience, but you also bring credibility to the business amongst some of the old, older guard, let's say that some of the veteran dealers and, uh, and, and, and players within the hobby. So makes a lot of sense. Mike, Mike confirms three years ago that he bought my part on com C. Thanks again for that, Mike. Uh, what do we have here? Simon says, am I able to list cards even though I live in Australia or is it only for can the U.S. Canadian residents? The easy answer is yes, you can. You just got to get the, but you have to get the cards to them. ComC takes your cards and does all the work, which is wonderful. Ziggy No asks, is ComC coming to the Chantilly Expo this fall? Where can we find out when ComC is attending a show? I mean, I think it's tough right now to answer that with uh, with the state of the world, but do you guys, uh, does the ComC blog or somewhere discuss where you will be for submission? I have a feeling we're not going anywhere for a while just to sort through everything. I don't think we're going to Chantilly, Siggy. I'd love, I'd love to be there. But I think until we know for sure what shows are going to exist and what we have, you know, as I, as I point out, we're just trying to work through what we have. It's good to be out there, but it might be a case where if we go out there, it's you know, it would be, we're not, we'll come out there, you know, we'll see what's going on, but, you know, taking more cards is not always the wisest thing to do when, when you're backlogged When you're backlogged yeah, and you're busy hiring. So fair answer. Really appreciate that. Rich, another question from Ziggy. Uh, and then I'm with that. And it's a great transition. Ziggy seems to find the timing, uh, get the timing right here. So he says, Rich, how many nationals have you attended? And which one was the best and why? And then we're going to talk about card. Here's the thing. I, I told Rich yesterday, everybody, that you know he's been going to the National since it started. And he had been going to card shows before. And as a hobby enthusiast myself and you know a lover of cards in this hobby in the community, I want to get Rich's perspective on how card shows have changed in general since the, from the mid-80s to 2019. Because we haven't had any in 2020. But we will also touch on virtuals. We have had some virtual uh, events. So, but before that, he, Rich, why don't you answer this question and then let's talk about the evolution of card shows through your eyes. I've been to somewhere in the mid thirties of card shows. Of the nationals? Nationals. The nationals. Somewhere in the mid thirties. I don't remember the exact count. I think it's probably 34, 35, 36, somewhere around there. 30, probably closer to 34, 35. Okay. The first one I ever attended was in 1983, which is the fourth national. I went with my friend Mel Solomon. I had a quarter of his table. Thursday night, there was the setup, the other setup. By the end of Thursday night, I had already paid for my whole trip. Nice. Friday, Friday, Chicago National was 12 hours. It may be the single greatest day ever in national history. We were busy all day. We were making markets on Ron Kittle and Dale Murphy rookie cards. I think by the time we were done, we were buying uh, Kittle rookie cards for three and selling for five and Murphy's for five and selling for eight. I mean, that started the day at two and we got up to eight or something like that. We, great margins. Yeah, great margins. And then we were getting them and we were selling them. And I I mean, the Chicago, 83 Chicago National run by my late friend Bruce Painter and his wife Benita. You know, it was a wonderful show, and it was a way to be really learn about the national in one fell swoop. And it was also where, at that show one night, we came up with the bylaws for the future nationals. That you, you know, at that time, the national was basically stuck in the Midwest, and that that was the night we came up with the four hundred mile rule, where the national had to be four hundred miles away 
from where it was the year before, and it couldn't be in a contiguous state. It had to be at least two states away. So that was a great experience. 84 was the first national I ever set up by myself. As it turned out, I officially met Jim at that national. That's pretty good. 85 national, the job I was working at the time, the company was going to buy us, bailed out when I was on the plane to go to the 85 Anaheim National. So that was an interesting national for a different reason. And then after the 90 National, I got hired. I had my official interview with Dr. Beckett, and I got hired after the 90 National about a month later. And then a lot of the Nationals were great. The 91 National was the one that if you've ever read about it, I was literally afraid for my life during pro, during the first preview promo night. I went with a couple friends of mine, Bernie Lytle and Mark Shreve, and they were they were dealers from Arkansas, and we all got scared. We went to the cafeteria like nowhere near the show. Did you and, think you were going to get stampeded or something? What were you scared of? It was almost like a riot, and okay. we got out of Dodge. Wow. We went to the quietest place we could think of, and that whole weekend – I just tried to just get through that weekend. That was the first weekend I worked for Beckett. That was the first national I went to working for Beckett. And I wasn't quite sure. And on top of it, it was such an overwhelming experience that that's one that's in my seared in my memory banks. But uh, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to live through that weekend. (laughs) And then, you know, the nationals continued. And then, the 89 National, I should have gone back and talked about 89 National. I was busy from the moment I set up through that. As a matter of fact, the 89 National, we ran into one of the people I later sold. I sold cards to somebody who ended up being a Beckett teammate of mine a couple of years later. We remembered, oh, yeah, I sold cards to you. Oh, I sold cards to him. And I knew all his friends. And then the last couple of years working for ComC have been fascinating, too. And, you know, and I didn't say this in the intro, but I've been very blessed. This is like my fourth act in the hobby. Most people may get one or two. I've had four, four or five, you know, and that's pretty fun that I've now, now I have the Uncle Rich persona. Yeah. And You're, I think, a lifer. You're a lifer, Rich. Yes, I am a lifer. For sure. Okay. So thanks. Thank, I, th- I think, I think we answered Ziggy's question about kind of how many national have you been to, which is the best and why. And I do want to, I, you've pretty much even given us an idea, but I want, I want about how the national has changed over the years, but there's more, there's more to speak to that. But before you do, I just want to uh, address a few more comments that have, that have come in here. Um, another Ziggy asks, will the national ever make, make it back West? Did they ever do Vegas or Reno? Uh, did, did they ever do Vegas or Reno, Rich? No. And they'll, and frankly, I don't think we'll ever do Vegas or Reno as a national just because there's not enough family element. Where do you bring? Where do you send the kids and wives? Yeah, good, good point for a Vegas Reno type of thing. And uh, okay, um, Brian says, "Ooh, I say West Coast for the national." I've heard, I've heard stories about you know, not firsthand, but from the organizers of the national that it's not easy to just pick a city and say we're going to do it there. These things need to be scheduled like two years in advance to get the proper facility for a, for an event as big as the national. It's not as easy as saying. Oh, we should have in Los Angeles next year and do it. It, it. There's way more logistics behind the scenes than just calling up a convention center in Los Angeles and saying, hey, we want to have a show there six months later. Apparently, it doesn't quite work that way. And there aren't that many facilities in the United States that are willing to host this event at all. So, and, and matter of fact, there may be 10 to 12 facilities in America that can basically host the event, period, end of sentence. And then, as you said, you have to work with them. 
the late Mike Burkus, who really was one of the founders of the National and continued working with the National literally until he passed a couple years ago, lived in Anaheim. He helped run the shows in Anaheim. And there were several Nationals in Anaheim. And I posted, and I posted today's the West Coast National subject came up on the Net 54 message board, which is the leading vintage. And I said, Anaheim, in terms of attendance, as a person, is a really cool show to go to. Yeah. All, you have enough hotels and enough eating places within walking distance of the Anaheim Convention Center where it's like Baltimore or Chicago. It's a really good location if you want to set up. Yeah. One of the big, the other big issues you have with the West Coast is a lot of the people from the East Coast, they're not as young as they used to be yeah. or as young as we'd like them to be, and they don't want to travel cross-country anymore. Right. And so you're not going to get a lot of people. They'll go to Chicago, but they really don't want to go much further west than that. I think Central I think Central is the best. The Chicago is the Cleveland's. Baltimore, Atlantic City, a little bit too far east. The West is West. I like him right in the middle. Okay. I want to thank Brian Kingsley for that shout out. Brian, thanks so much. That does mean a lot to me and followed up by Ziggy with a similar comment. Really do appreciate that, fellas. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, Okay. Rich, tell us a little bit. Actually, before you do that, I just want to address uh, what do we have here? Greg Cohn says 1991 National in Anaheim was crazy. Now, I wasn't there, but I had a card shop in 1991 and I remember hearing about it and fantasizing about going to it. It just seemed so far away. Of course, Brian says, LA, you've got Disneyland for sure. But who wants to go to Disneyland when you can go to the Disneyland of sports card events? And that's the national itself. Greg says, Upper Deck promos with the comic ball and their venture into basketball were huge. Was that the Looney Tunes, uh, the Upper Deck Looney Tunes uh, set up? I forget what they called it, but I, I remember selling those packs back in the day. And Paul welcomes back Greg. Greg, welcome. Thank you for tuning in. Greg was my guest a couple of weeks ago. We had a great chat. Amazing guest. Thanks again for that, Greg. Okay. Tell us, Rich, a little bit about, because the National started out as a card show. Simple. A card show. You go there, vendors selling cards. It's changed now. It's really a production. Of course, there's the card show element, which does take out take up a large area of the show. But explain to us, how the transition went from traditional card show to what is now the national, what was added to it along the way, Rich? Okay. And I alluded to this earlier. You know, I talk about meeting Jim Beckett in, at a Parsippany softball field in 1984. Yeah. Well, that was part of the national. The national was in a hotel called the Aspen hotel, a nice ballroom for 400 tables in 1984. There were seminars there were banquets, trivia contests, and yes, softball is part of the national. <laughs> you know, fun things to do, de- getting the dealers together, getting dealers to do fun things. I think some of the nationals in the early years even had a hospitality room, you know, after the show where you could just hang out. And there was always that one night of the business meeting where you just said, please end this before midnight. Um, but the national evolved after the 91 national there was no more softball there was no more banquet there was no more trivia contests there i was going to run the trivia contest at the 91 national well we never got that at that point it was just don't even bother we're just trying to get through this let's not even do anything extracurricular we got the softball in we didn't get anything else in um and 
we don't have that anymore. And there's something missing about that familial, familial outlook that we had in those days. But it was smaller back then, right? It was smaller. It was easier to rub shoulders. Four hundred tables, five hundred yeah. tables. You saw you saw the people you knew much more regularly because the room was so much smaller, and you were more likely to to run into everybody. But what, in terms of the the transition, like when did we first see the autograph pavilion? When did we first see the grading, the corporate sponsors area, which is a huge section of it? How did that transition in? Take us through the timeline a little bit. The first corporate area i believe is 1986 in arlington okay where because the company that does sports flicks was located right near arlington so they took a booth since sports flicks was being made 15 20 minutes away from the arlington national so they had a booth and then there wasn't much more as i you know upper deck in 89 we're talking about the this is before 91 89 upper deck they have tables to give out their promo sheets. It the corporate booths really start taking off like 92, 93, because the national had to readjust some of their bylaws to really let the corporate start doing things. Okay. Because otherwise you had to do it from a selling table. Right. And so it took a, there was a transition in the mid nineties because we talk about the 91 national. Well, we talk about Mike Burkus. Well, Jim and Mike Burkus worked out a deal. There were three of us that actually had national tables. I had saved mine from the year before. There's a man named B.A. Murray, and Jim had two tables. We combined the six tables. We had tables. We were in a corporate booth, but we had six tables in the middle of the floor. And we were just selling back issues and current Beckett magazines. And I think they had to ship out more twice during the show huh. from Dallas. That's how busy they all were. I mean, they, they never drew a minute's breath. It was an amazing, huge hit as a, of a show. But, you know, by 96, 97, we had a Beckett corporate. In fact, by 96, I know, we had, or 95, we had Beckett corporate booth. Actually, 94, we had one. So by about 94, 95, the corporate booths really get going. Okay. And then there's always been autographed guests started growing in importance. And Jeff Rosenberg had helped run the shows going back to about 96, 97, he definitely helped with the Cleveland National, I believe, in 97. He had to help Bill Goodwin in 95 and the people in St. Louis. And so it didn't take that much longer to all of a sudden come up with an autographed pavilion. So by about 2000, you have the autographed pavilion. Okay. Because there were there were rules that you had to work through and change about what you could charge for people to buy autographs. To sure. pay, you know. Because the way the National was originally set up, it was really set up where all autographs had to be free. Oh, okay. You can't do that today's world. Well, no one's going to sign for free today. No one's going to sign for free, you know. So, so then, then what was the, what was, after the autograph pavilion came out, what was the next new thing that we saw? Well, some, as the autograph pavilion is going on, there's also for a couple of years the Beanie Baby Pavilion. The Beanie Baby Pavilion, everybody. Beanie Pavilion. Yes, okay. when Beanie Babies were hot, there was a Beanie Baby Pavilion. It's not there anymore. No, it, it lasted like one or two years and then went, yeah. went away. What came after that? And then it took a while. And a few years ago, the case-breaking pavilion got going. Yeah. And I've and I, I've always been a fan of case-breaking done right. Yeah. Because if you're a team, you know, right now I'm in Texas. Let's say I wanted Series 1 Texas Rangers in 2020 tops. 
Well, Tops goofed that up. There was one Texas Ranger in 2020 Tops or two, and maybe some inserts. Hey, I can get all the Rangers reasonably cheaply in a case break. I'm all in on that. And I don't ever have to chase down another Series 1 Tops 2020 card. Right. right? You know, and so if you're a team collector, especially if you're a lesser team collector, case breaking is wonderful. It guarantees you the team you the teams you want at reasonable prices. And so if you have an honest case breaker, it's it's a wonderful thing to build a relationship with because they'll buy all your products. Yeah, and we, we have many of them in the business now, and I know a lot of them uh, probably ship a lot of their, their cards on behalf of themselves and their customers to to Com C to uh, to sell these things too, to sell the cards that come out of these case breaks. So so we, we go from a show that has really just card tables to a corporate sponsor a corporate section to an autograph pavilion, which is a huge section of the national. Now we've got the case breaker pavilion and we had the beanie baby pavilion in there for a couple of years. I wonder what the next thing we'll see will be. If anything, who knows if it's another collectible or if there's an evolution in the hobby that will, you know, that'll add something new that follows that, that thread of autograph pavilion, case break pavilion. What's the next thing we'll see. Who knows? Maybe someone in the, in the comments has some ideas what we may see later. So, okay. Well, thanks for taking us through sort of the evolution of the national. Cause for not, I, I don't know if anyone watching has been to as many of, as you have. So it's really cool to, to kind of hear that. Simon makes a comment. He says, if the hobby keeps growing and growing, will major international card shows be an option? Example, different countries each year. My, my response to that is I think we'll see different countries holding their own and it's up to people in the United States and Canada and, and Europe and Asia to travel internationally to get to them. But speaking from my own experience, I've been to several, several nationals, probably been to 15 nationals and 30 expos in Toronto. And I see international people at both of those shows regularly. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. DPM sports cards wants to know, has Indianapolis ever been considered for a national? Do you know the answer to that, Rich? I don't know the answer for that, but I, I it would at one level, it'd be a wonderful place to go because it would really want to have the national. You can get there. Yeah, it's a big enough right. city. It can support us. On another level, I don't know the details whether people would actually want to go there, but I think it's in the Midwest, so you would get a nice, and it's not super far away. So it's it's not the worst idea for a location in the world. Yeah. Uh, hey, I live in Dallas. I'd love us to use the Dallas Convention Center. That's big enough for the national. But I got news for you. It's 100 degrees outside in the middle of summer in Texas for 95. Yeah. A lot of people gets, are not going to go gets, on. You know what, though, Rich? It gets pretty balmy outside that that uh, Stevens Center in Chicago, too. I, I remember walking. You know, it's nice and cool inside the show, and you walk out. And by the time you get, you know, that underground parking circular there, by time you're not parking, but that drive about, you get out from there onto that road to get to your hotel or the restaurants. And, I mean, you're schwitzing as soon as you, as soon as you get outside there. Greg says yes, as I think he may be answering if uh, Indianapolis has ever been considered. Steve said, uh, sorry, Steve says, yes, Jeremy, you have the best guests, hands down, not even close. Thank you, Steve. Rich, you're, you're part of that uh, fraternity now, so thanks so much. Paul says, uh, no Pogs Pavilion. Good. Was there ever a Pogs Pavilion? I don't pavilion? think we had a Pogs Pavilion. I don't think Pogs made it quite enough. There might have been in 95 or 96, but I don't remember that. That was not as overwhelming. Yeah, but uh, people, people, dealers sold them, and some of them still do. They still bring their pogs. I bet a bunch of those veteran guys still have some left over. Uh, Ziggy says next year you'll have the content providers pavilion, which to me is very similar to the case breakers, but 
maybe a subsection of that live streaming and it stuff actually, like that. It actually is a content providers pavilion to oh. some extent. They've been doing GTS has been hosting live for the last few years. So actually he's right. Maybe it'll be more web, you know, more of the content providers having all having their individual setups, sort of like what tops did at the million card break. But yes, yeah. there, I think he's got a point where I think you could have the content providers pavilion or well, a you know what? I'll tell you one thing. If they there, I mean, Eric Norton, I believe, hosted last year or two years ago a roundtable of podcasters. Yeah. So cool. it, it's already there. Well, if they do that, uh, don't count on finding me there because I will be too busy scouring the booths looking for cards. I, I don't have any interest in sitting at a at a content provider's uh, pavilion at a table. I want to be out there moving the floor. When I, when I'm at the national, I'm you know I've, I'm focused. I'm focused. I'm I'm looking for cards I and. Think uh, you do, I think you might do like an hour. I think you might schedule yourself for maybe an hour here and here. That no, that's no problem. But I, I certainly don't want You're to not be, be there uh, eight hours a day. But I don't want to be anchored. Hour. I don't want to be anchored to something like that. That's for sure. Simon says the Zoom pavilion. Yeah, same card, same sort of thing. Absolutely says sports cards live should have a feature on the main stage. Hey, I'd be happy to do something like that. Uh, Absolute goes on to say, make sure to like this video, hit the thumbs up button and submit your questions in the comments. Yes, please do everybody. Any comments, anytime you want to leave a comment in the video, apparently that's really good for the whole YouTube thing. So happy to, uh, to, to take comments. I do respond. I get several and I do respond to just about every single one. So please do that. If you can hit that thumbs up, subscribe if you haven't all that. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, Jeff McMahon says any chance of a national in Michigan, downtown Detroit has a nice convention center. Again, you know, we had the national in Michigan in 1981. We had it, I believe it was, uh, I don't remember, what, but it was in Michigan. It's different. It's a different thing now, right? It's a different thing now. I think Detroit is okay. It depends how much, it depends how many hotel rooms and restaurants are nearby, but there's, but there's a really good collecting base in Michigan. So you probably could do it if you have enough, we'll call it safe space in Detroit. Yeah. To do it. I also want to bring up, we talked about international shows. When you had my former teammate, Grant Sandground, and I don't know if you talked about it, but he went to Japan for a show in 2000. He did, he did mention that. Yeah. And, on you the know, show. barely got back before 9 11. Could yeah. you imagine if he got stuck in Japan for Gosh, like two could you, could you imagine? Another, you know, um, in terms of a show in Michigan, that's very close to Ontario, Canada, and Toronto. And I mean, I think it borders. If yeah, pretty sure they border each other uh, right around Lake Michigan there. And uh, I mean, you'd get a lot of people. A lot of Canadians would cross the border for that and come down. And there'd be a big, a big hockey contingent for sure. Carlos says, and good evening, Carlos. Uh, mobile live streaming, Jeremy. It's the future. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Simon says, I just think it would be good for the companies to interact in person with international collectors. Example: Beckett, PSA, and and the card companies for sure. Jeff confirms it was Plymouth, Michigan in 1981. Okay, Rich, we're at an hour and six minutes. You said, oh, we'll go for about an hour, but- I'm you good. We can keep going. I'll give you a hand. I'm making you, I'm not letting you go, man. I'm not letting you go, okay? Oh, you yeah, yeah. If I start needing it, I'll give you a hand signal. And welcome, yes, welcome and back. Welcome comment. back, BM. Windsor and Detroit are bordering cities. And BM, I did send you, BM was the lucky winner of the Goodwin hits from uh, this past Saturday. I did message you back on Instagram, so please reply and I will ship those out to you. Okay. Now, uh, that, you, um, you know the, the Journey song, Born and Raised in South Detroit? I'd have to hear it. You'd have to hear it, but there, there's a song 
you know, it's, it's, on, it's on the Escape album because I know that yes. album pretty well. It is yeah. okay. Then I know the song. You know the song. It's a famous yeah. song. But you know, born and raised in South Detroit. Well, people in Detroit they call they call South Detroit Ontario, Canada. Yeah, fair. Okay. Which is when you mentioned that earlier. I just thought we'd bring up the journey reference. Okay. So, okay. Thank you, BM. I see your message. Now, uh, Rich, I don't want you to spend a lot of time answering this question, but because they're there behind you and everyone can see them, uh, Absolute asks, so can you tell us about the goodies behind you? Okay. So I'll I'll try to keep this short. You got 30 seconds. I can't do it that short. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, I run a show from my synagogue at the Havarim twice a year. This year, we, we did get the March show in before COVID really hit. And then the September shows that was going to be Labor Day weekends gone away. November is tentatively scheduled. But making the story short, Texas State, I used to do 10 door prizes a show, 10, 12 door prizes a show. Well, Texas State law prohibits nonprofits from having more than two raffles a year. So technically, I was breaking the law with every show I did. And then I get a phone call. Do you remember this guy named Myron from the early 90s? Yeah, I remember Myron. He was he would about once a month host a trivia show with some other baseball people on one of the radio stations locally in Dallas. And Myron had built a really good collection. But the other thing Myron did is Myron would get these shopping bags. And he'd put 100 cards in the bag. And there'd be a prize slip inside and the prize slip would always be something worth a dollar or two at least, if not more. And that, for a nonprofit like us, was totally legal to give cards away with the prize slip, which is like the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae. Totally legal because they've already received something of value for their money. The fact that they're getting a prize is just more. So people are saying, oh, you'll take, our, you'll take my cards and donations. Well, everything you see in this office is a donation. Crazy. These are donations for you to then give away to your uh, attendees at the, at the right. card show. So bags. Everybody gets a free bag for showing up. And then we give away bags depending on, you know, then the other bags are a dollar each. But sometimes the bags say, grab another bag, grab another five bags. You can walk out with a monster box of cards for twenty for ten, fifteen, twenty dollars and prizes. Okay. And so, hey, we need cards. We got cards. Great. And yeah. some really cool cards in here. And I make one pass through. Like for example, I went through one box the other day, and there were a couple eighty-nine team sets. So I said, okay, I can use those as prizes. Ray, my friend Raymond Jones, who does a lot of the same work went through one of the boxes we got and saw 25 Hustler magazine cards. We're a synagogue. We're not going to have those cards in the bag. So we make one pass through to look for prizes and also to get rid of really bad cards and really inappropriate cards because we don't want something that's not kid-friendly. We really yeah, have sure. to be kid-friendly. So, so, so really, in summary, they're donations to the synagogue for the card show that you organize and you give them away to attendees. Is that, is that, the, is that, the, is that the Coles Notes? That's the that's the basic way of putting it. That's the easiest way of putting it. Okay, because let's let's move along. So we have the next section of the show. I've got about about half a dozen points I want to get to, calling it basically current events, things that are going on now. So everything we've talked about up until now is kind of histor- historical, a historical perspective on the hobby through the eyes of a, of a veteran. Um, I want to get into what's a few of the things that are going on right now. Today, today. 
we had a major event in sports, a major non-event, I suppose you could call it, where the Milwaukee Bucks boycotted the, their 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 playoff game today against uh, who are they playing? Was it Orlando? They were, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so they boycotted the game. It's all been postponed, and uh, you know some 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 very important reasons why. Why don't you sort of speak to that quickly about that? And then I want to know what you think and any effect on cards, because this is sports cards live, not not politics live. And I'm happy to touch on why they why they boycotted. But let's really see. Is there what do you think any short term or long term effects on the hobby would be from them boycotting the game? I don't think there's much right now. Long term, I don't know. It depends what happens. I so I'm 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 not a soothsayer. I don't know. I'm not Karnak, if you're old enough to understand that reference. But there are a couple of documented in instances where players for the Milwaukee Bucks were racially profiled. There was one person who got accused of being basically a crook. Uh, he walked into a jewelry store and he had a nice car parked outside, and the guy immediately assumed that was a stolen car, called the police. Nothing thankfully happened to that person, but he got racially profiled. He's still with the Bucks. And there was another player who double parked, was trying to do something real quickly. And yes, he probably shouldn't have double parked. And he had basically a gun pulled on him. And so for there are two players on the Milwaukee Bucks who have similar experiences. Thankfully, nothing serious happened to them. But they were, so you've got two of 12 players on your team who already have had that happen to them. So then when what happened in Kenosha happened, it's like a wake-up call, like this is still going on. And they felt very deeply about it, and in their minds, rightly so. It's not my place to say whether it's right or not, but if they feel it's the right thing to do, it's, it's their call. In 1968, Major League Baseball probably in retrospect, should have canceled a lot of their opening day games the day of Martin Luther King's funeral. Right. A lot of players really wanted to, pro in a sense, protest. So in a sense, we haven't really changed in 50 years, more than 50 years. And honestly, the people who stood up in 1968 and said, we really should have protested or will will protest, honestly, nothing's happened to their cards. If, they, if they're a superstar, they sell great. And if they're a common, they're still a common. What about so on that level, it won't happen. On the field performance is what really counts. What about Colin Kaepernick? He's a polarizing figure in the hobby. Do you, and you know his some people some people have his cards have gone up in value since the whole the the, the BLM movement has really come to fruition here. Um, his they've gone up in value because he's a historical figure now that, that transcends sport. Uh, do you think that anybody on this Milwaukee Bucks team? Is going to follow in in those shoes at all, or is it too uh, is that too loose of an assumption? I think that's too loose of an assumption. Colin Kaepernick was the first and the focal point. Fair, yeah. And so that's why some people want nothing to do with his cards, and other people say I can make money with his cards and I'll sell them. You know. Yeah, and people want them obviously. And on the other end of the political spectrum, you have Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling's a very conservative, right-wing, almost activist. And he's very aggressive that way. And there are people who, I'm sure on the left spectrum, want no part of his cards. And there are people on the right-wing spectrum that say, more, more, more. And, you know, and poor Kurt Schilling, and I'm just going to say something. I saw a report, you know, that was incorrectly posted. Then Steve Bannon got arrested that's arrested 
that Kurt Schilling got arrested too. Kurt was on the board of advisors for that whole build the wall thing. He was not arrested. Nobody arrested him. Let's not make false accusations of somebody. You sure. know, let's get the fact. Yeah. And then there and there it is on the thing. That's what I'm referring to. Okay. Okay, so I just wanted to, to touch on that because it is significant. It happened today, and a lot of people wanted to watch some basketball today. They didn't get to, and I think um, if you didn't get to watch basketball today and you were hoping to, I, I, I think my personal opinion is you – I think I, – I don't want to get political, but I think it's okay that we didn't get basketball today, and I think that we should be supporting this, and it's all for the – it's all to move in the right direction as humanity. Okay. Let's let's move along to the next piece. I, I mentioned, you know, current events. That's very current. The next one I want to talk about, Rich, is um, the fact that we just saw the record broken for the most expensive card ever sold at public auction. Ken Golden sold the Mike Trout Super Factor, the 2009 one of one, BGS 9, I believe, for $3.84 million. What does that tell you about the hobby? I mean, we all know that things are going crazy right now, but for... Things to be going crazy, but also for a modern day card to outsell the most iconic card in the hobby being the T206 Honus Wagner. What does that tell you about where the hobby's going, Rich? A guy who's been around as long as you have in this hobby, vintage has always been the foundation of it, really. What do you, what does this tell you when modern is now outselling uh, vintage? Okay, first, Mike Trout is a special player. He's the Mickey Mantle of this generation. You know, and he he hasn't gotten as much publicity outside of baseball as the other superstars of baseball throughout history, but he's the best player of his generation. This is his first major card. It's a one-on-one. As you said, it's a BGS9 with a 10 autograph. It's a one-on-one, and it's signed, and it's slabbed, and you know what you're getting with that card. And, yes, $4 million sounds a little absurd, but then again, in, 19, in 1991, I got quoted in New York Magazine, oh, this Wagner PSA 8 will sell for maybe 150000 200000 because it's the best-known example, and the last one sold for you know X, and so it'll go there. Well, I wake up Saturday morning, and this is why I'm out of the prognostication business. Yeah. And I see the headline and made the Dallas Morning News Saturday morning edition on the front page. Uh, Wagner sells for $451,000 to Wayne Gretzky and Bruce McNall. Well, we, we all thought everybody was crazy in those days. Ken Kendrick, the owner of the Diamondbacks, owns that card. I believe he paid $3 million for it. And honestly, that card has a book written about it. It's a unique card. Yes, it's yes, it was officially admitted it was trimmed. But you know what? That specific card, it's irrelevant whether it was trimmed. If Ken Kendrick sold that card tomorrow... I bet you he'll get $10 million for it. Yeah. So, it's, so Trout at four, yes, it's the record breaker. You give me that PSA 8 Wagner, it goes to 10. It goes to 12. It goes right now past that. You yeah. know, you have you had Brian Gray on a couple of times, and Brian's very interesting. But Brian is also very smart. Brian pays attention. Brian will sometimes pay tomorrow's prices for cards today if he thinks there's upward movement. Yeah. And I guarantee you that person who paid $4 million for that card probably thinks there's upward movement in that card. Either that or he's the biggest Mike Trout fan in the history of the planet with money to burn. It, it, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, we, yeah, there, lot, lots of written, written and said about the guy that 
own that card, the, this Vegas Dave character, and I don't know much about him, so we're not going to get into that. But uh, but yeah, there probably there will be. In order for cards to go up in value, they have to sell. You can't see a value appreciation unless these things are transacting. So it uh, for for a record, uh, you know what? I, I do believe that there are some cards out there that could be sold in the future that would outsell this Mike Trout card. Ziggy makes a comment that, you know, it's pretty interesting that it's not even a rookie card. I think it's an XRC. It's a, a pre-rookie card. You know, it's two years before his rookie card. Uh, try to explain that to a non-collector. Similar to how the 52 Topps Mantle outsells the 51 Bowman, which is actually the rookie card. You know, it's a there's other, other factors at play. Now, the hobby isn't quite as linearly straightforward as it once was, especially with all these different products. It used to be one set a year maybe two, you know, now it's dozens upon dozens. So things have definitely changed. I want to just uh, a comment from a few minutes ago. I want to say to Absolute, he asked where we can donate cards to your cause. Uh, Rich, I would just say, please reach out to Rich on Twitter at, at SaberGeek, S-A-B-R Geek. It's on the ticker right now. I'll let you guys have that conversation offline. Anyone else who's interested in that, please reach out to Rich directly. Okay. Um, Hello, Legion. Welcome to the show. Good to see you. Better late than never, pal. Better late than never. Uh, Simon says, does winning affect baseball players' card prices less than, say, basketball? Truth be told, Trout has not won a thing yet team-wise. I mean, yeah, astute comment. It's fair because that is the fact that, you know, his cards outsell, but he hasn't won. And, you know, Mickey Mantle was a champion. I think I think he, need his, I think he needs to win to... Uh, to really solidify, I had a I had a discussion with Carlos the other day from because I'm Carlos and he think you know Albert Pujols has won and he believes is a, is a better player. I mean, I, it really it just depends where people are focusing their attention and and who's who's hot now. Rich, speak to that, please. Well, I was at the World Series game where Albert Pujols hits three homers against the Rangers. That was like you know near the end of his time with the Cardinals, but man, he just I mean, it was. It almost was like if he had hit the homer in the first first inning, he'd have four homers in the game. You know, he. It was almost like he could do whatever he wanted when he was with the Cardinals in terms of playing. Yeah. So he does have a couple World Series championships. Yes, Trout has. I don't think he's ever won a playoff game. Yeah. You're a hockey guy, and there's hockey, and there are hockey that are great that may have won one Stanley Cup or no Stanley Cups. Uh, There's several all time. There are notable Hall of Famers, one who just passed away last week, who I was a heavy collector of, Dale Howarchuk, who Hall of Famer never won the Stanley Cup. Marcel Dion was the second highest leading goal, uh, point getter in NHL history until Jagger recently beat him or, or overtook him, and he never won a Stanley Cup, but he's a well-known Hall of Famer. Um, you know, Chris makes the comment here, not Trout's fault, the Angels, the Angels are a poorly built team. That's a fair comment. I will make a counterpoint that, and I'm going to use hockey because I remember when the Pittsburgh Penguins drafted Mario Lemieux in 84 or 85, whichever year that was, they were a, a bottom of the barrel team and they drafted him. And, and by 1991, he transformed them into Stanley Cup champions. On the other hand, you look at Connor McDavid, who Chris says, look at McDavid in hockey. Well, McDavid's already had five years to transform his team into an, a Stanley Cup champion. He hasn't been able to do, to do that yet, and it doesn't look like they're anywhere close to it. I also remember when the Detroit Red Wings brought Steve Eiserman in in 1984. They were the worst team in the league for a few years leading up to that. Whatever, I forget how many years later, he brought this, he helped bring the Stanley Cup to Detroit. So, you know, I think in terms of Mike Trout, um, it's not his fault they're a poorly built team. 
but the a player who commands one uh, four million dollars for a card, I think, should be able to transform your team almost single-handedly into, if not a champion, at least a, a serious contender. And I know baseball is much different than hockey. There's many different, you know, you've got all your different positional players, but it's not his fault. But I think in order to have a long lasting impact in this hobby, you need to be a champion to make it from that Hall of Fame. Hall of Famers are one thing. Legends are, are another thing and icons are a whole other thing. And to be an icon, I think you have to be a winner. I don't know that Mike Trout is ever going to be an icon unless he can win a championship. Really, that's what he plays for. Besides the money and the fun, he wants the championship. He wants that World Series uh, under his belt. And if he doesn't get it, I don't know that he'll ever, you know, reach that level of the Mickey Mantles and the Derek Jeters and the players who have who have done that before. Rich, why don't you jump in and give your perspective? Well, one thing, you know, you're right, dude. One of the biggest differences is baseball is less individually oriented than the other sports. You know, when I was first collecting, first dealing, the biggest three players that were all, we'll call it the same generation, were Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, and Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron was the all-time home run champion. You know how many World Series Hank Aaron has? One championship, two World Series appearances, three postseason appearances. Aaron played 23 years. He's, you know, he's still one of the greatest players of all time. Willie Mays wins one World Series. He loses two World Series, so he's in three. Actually, amazingly, he, it's amazing that you just know all this stuff. And he's in the playoffs in 71. So he's only, for more than 20 years, he's only in the playoffs five times. Stan Musial, who's an underrated player, has a bunch of World Series at the beginning of his career. After 1946, the Cardinals don't play in the World Series for the last 17 years of his career. Yeah. It, it's okay. I mean, yes, I'd like to see Trout at least make a run in the playoffs. I don't even think they have to win the World Series. I think it would help if they made a deep run in the playoffs because Charles Barkley never won a, a an NBA title, but Charles Barkley is beloved, and also because of what he did afterwards. But, but he's not – But the finals once, I believe. But Charles Barkley doesn't follow in the line of like you know Michael Jordan, Kobe, LeBron. Now maybe Luca next. He he doesn't because he was he's overshadowed by the Mike. You know he's the same era as Michael Jordan. And you know the Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, uh, what you just discussed. I mean, makes sense. But they each won one. You you know you you, you only need to win one in my opinion. Now. Of course, the players, they get that taste. They want to win another and another and another, and the fans do too. But you've won. You now have your name on that trophy. You are a you are a world champion. To be the best player in baseball but not ever become a world champion, it's just I think there's something missing. But Chris makes a comment. Let's look at Trout in 10 more years before we start comparing him and Pujols to each other. I think that's a fair comment, and let's see if, the Angels can turn it around somehow. Maybe he will step up and lead them to the that holy land, if you will, of, of being a contender. It's it's very possible. Chris says a single player has more impact in hockey than baseball. Completely agree with that 100%. Carlos speaks up. What does Carlos say? The Angels also are not going to get not going to get better, spending $35 million on a player who can't fix that either unless he starts pitching nothing changes i mean that's a pretty grim outlook for the angels and for his championship winning possibilities and, and unfortunately the angels have had at least in the last 10 years two pitching tragedies 
of people who should have been, and I don't remember when Nick Adenhart passed, you know, when he was in the car crash after he wins his first major league game, he wasn't even driving and some guy hits the car and he dies that night and he wasn't even driving, you know, so even if he had celebrated, he, they weren't driving. It was a drunk driver that hit it. Tyler, Tyler Skaggs passes, you know, because it's hard playing baseball and he probably took some things to help him. And unfortunately those things did not mix well in his body. Right. And we lost him. Yeah. So they, both of those guys, if they become half as good as they were projected to be, the angels have pitching. So things sometimes happen beyond people's controls too. You know, I, I don't want to say I guarantee you Mike Trout might throw back some money, but if the angels went to him and said, instead of 35 million, will you, will you defer some of your salary and that we can sign better players? You know, you know, Tom Brady did that for years. Yeah. People will do that if it thinks they can help them win the championship, especially when you're making as much money as they do. So let he's right. Let's give him time. Yeah. But his stats are just out of worldly compared to everybody else. Miguel Cabrera won a triple crown. They didn't win the World Series that year either. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, 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 and that's a common sort of occurrence where you might have a, a scoring leader in basketball or hockey, but they're not on the, the championship team. That probably happens just about every year. It's rare that it doesn't unless you're – we're talking about the Wayne Gretzky era way back when. Or uh, the Simon, Michael Jordan era where he led the NBA in scoring so often. Same, yes, exactly, same thing. Simon says, I didn't mean it as a slight on Trout, but he now has the highest selling card of all time, but he's not even in the conversation for greatest player to ever play their respective sport. Now, my understanding is that he might be in the conversation. I'm not an expert at baseball at all. I don't claim to be. I'm not going to pretend to be. I just know a little bit, enough to be able to talk about it like I am. But I've heard that he may go down as one of the best players of all time. I, I can't... I just heard it. Is there any validity to that? trajectory to have stats that are off the charts. He He's in the trajectory to have Dan Marino-type stats in nope. terms of what it was at the time. Dan Marino played in one Super Bowl, doesn't play in a lot of playoffs, but he had the greatest stats when he retired of any quarterback in NFL history. Yeah. He didn't win. Nope. His rookie pri- card is higher priced. It may still be higher priced than John Elway. Yeah. I mean, true. true. John Elway now has two Super Bowls. Yeah. But I think Marino rookie, I don't know. I haven't looked it up. I haven't owned them in long enough where I can know what the prices are. But Marino rookies were always much higher than Elway. Yeah. If that's still true, Elway's got the two Super Bowls. Marino t- plays one one Super Bowl. Elway loses a few. Elway's in more often. Marino is more expensive. Yeah, I wonder if it's a personality thing. Like in Yamwax right here says, and welcome, welcome Yam, says, let's face it, Trout is kind of boring too. If he isn't culturally interesting and also doesn't win, he isn't iconic. I, I do tend to agree with that, with that comment. Um, and then I just want to run back to uh, Adam here says, do you think Ovechkin's legacy has changed since winning a cup? I 100% do, 100%. I mean, a lot of the run-up on Ovechkin's cards in the last year has been because of his threat on Wayne Gretzky's all-time goals record, which is now threatened itself because of COVID, and he's losing precious playing time in, in his latter years. But I certainly think his legacy is uh, has changed by winning a cup. He's a champion. And if you saw, and it, you know, it comes down back to also what Yam said about uh, Trout being boring. You look at Ovechkin. Ovechkin is a guy that you want to watch win because when he wins, he oozes joy. He oozes excitement. He loves He loves it. And it was so much fun to see him win the cup. 
You look at a guy like Connor McDavid, just to, or even Sidney Crosby, kind of boring guys. You know, they're not, they're not, they don't have exciting personalities. Where Ovechkin, you just, you just can't wait to see him interviewed because you never know what he's going to say. He's just a guy having fun out there. So, I, but at the same time, of course, Crosby and you know, McDavid somewhat outsell Ovechkin, even though I don't know that they both should at this point. Anyway, I'm sort of rambling on that. Let's keep on going. One thing about oh, good point. Sorry, right, but a good point here by Chris. Ken Griffey Jr. never won a World Series. And there's a guy who is somewhat iconic, if not partially because he's on the first upper deck card ever in terms of hobby and hobby value. Iconic outside of the hobby is kind of another thing, too. Okay, so actually, that's a great comment that uh, Christopher just made. Because one thing about Trout, you don't see him in commercials. You saw Ken Griffey Jr. in the commercials. Everybody in the 90s wanted to be Ken Griffey Jr. You saw him, the pres. I think somebody had a presidential campaign for him in 96. <laughs> He's on all these card sets. He knew how to get marketed. He was in Seattle, Washington. I mean, yeah, Comsey office is near Seattle, Washington, but he's in Seattle, Washington. Yeah. It's on the West Coast. You're not getting a lot of publicity. He became iconic without the World Series, without really ever getting deep into the playoffs. When he leaves, that's when the Mariners – I mean, his one playoff thing was, the, you know, the famous running from first base to home on Edgar Martinez's double in game five to win the series. The level of detail, Rich, it just blows my mind. Sorry, continue. And but Mike Trout doesn't do commercials. Yeah, they don't. They don't yet have Mike Trout as a national figure. You get Mike Trout commercials, you might all of a sudden make him iconic just by the fact that he's out there more. Yeah, yeah, fair. Okay, let's keep on moving here. Uh, Yam says this is what makes Tatis compelling. If he can be consistently great, he is just so charismatic, and I think charis- charisma is important in this hobby. I really do. Ziggy says the impact on the hobby is everyone will chase baseball looking for the next trout. Like is Jason Dominguez the next trout? The kid is young. Current collectors are looking for their trout. Of course they are, right? For sure. Jason Dominguez is also with the Yankees. That helps. If he is close to trout in that market, he can win rings and stats. Yep, sounds right. Buildings. Builder said, welcome to the show. Says trout is just an icon, period. And I do respect that comment because... When you believe it, you believe it. And you almost don't want to have to defend it because you believe it so strongly. And that's how I'm picking up on this comment right here is like, guys, listen, whatever you say, trust me, he he's he's an icon, period. And and you know what? If he if he lets it, if he talks with his bat, then he then maybe maybe he is. I want to see that. I want to see him really solidify that status by winning because now you're just entering into that that elusive territory that I think everybody wants to uh, wants to get into Paul loquacious details. Yes, we get, we get uh, rich. It blows my mind. You, you, you don't know. You, you don't only know who hit the, who hit, who hit the ball, who hit the home run in what season or for what team, you know, the, you know, the inning that it occurred in that that's pretty crazy, man. Simon says being a basketball collector, you need to more than just be a stat stuffer at some point. You also need to win and get to the next level and personality. I asked the question many, many shows ago about uh, James Harden. No, I asked it actually on another show. Why doesn't James Harden get any hobby love? And it's because you know because he scores all these points, but apparently people just don't like the guy, and that's going to hurt you in the hobby and maybe in the locker room as well. Chris says Trout is a great player that makes amazing plays. The problem is that tons of other players make amazing plays now too. He's an icon to baseball fans, but in the public eye, he is not. And I agree with that. 
you know, if you're not following the sport, you might not know who the guy is. You likely don't know who he is. But you did know who Ken Griffey Jr. was. You knew Derek Jeter. You knew A-Rod. You know, you may have even known Albert Pujols. These guys, uh, you know, Paul brings up Kawhi Leonard, another one who, you know, if he can win the third championship on a third team, uh, what is it, three years running? I mean, that that puts you in a, almost a special category of, of icons that is like, it's these like, we. I don't care if you think I'm an icon, I'm an icon. Like, it doesn't matter what anybody says. In that case, the guy has just proven it without having to say too many words. Rich, any comments before we talk a little bit about some of your other um, YouTube activities? No, I, I think, as I said, I think we can go back to the fact that Trout's not on commercials. He was on one, though. I got to tell you, I, I've seen him on one commercial. He, you know, Pete Rose was ubiquitous in the 70s and 80s on being on commercials. Mickey Mantle was in all these newspapers and was all these commercials. All these people that were doing all these commercials, or Willie Mays was famed because he played stickball on the street. When Hank Aaron set the home run record, all of a sudden there were a lot of Hank Aaron commercials and Hank Aaron publicity. You need the non-hobby publicity to become an icon. That's one thing. However, now that this $4 million trout is out there, that wow. may actually make people yeah. look, who is this guy and why is he selling for $4 million? You know, so you, you actually have the reverse. Yeah, you you nailed it right there, Rich. This might get him to be more of a household name because let's face it, nobody really knew. No, I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people under the age of, of what? 40 back in 1990, whatever it was, knew who Honus Wagner was. You know, of course, baseball enthusiasts and purists and, and long-term fans knew him, but he's one of the original Hall of Famers. He's a, an original pioneer of the game. He was dead long before any of these people were alive, yet that card sold, and now he's somewhat of a household name because of the card. I could see something like that similar ha uh, happening to Trout because of what just happened with the Golden Auctions uh, card that just sold. Uh, Slobs wants to know, why did baby Yaz stay in the minors for five years? I mean, that's something I can't speak to at all. Uh, can you? Okay, that's, he's uh, he's referring to Mike Yastrzemski, Carl Yastrzemski's yeah, grandson. Grandson, okay. And... This is one of the things that's going to be a shame if baseball ends up reducing the number of minor league teams. Mike Yastrzemski was what we'll call a late bloomer. He's having, the, ever since he's come up, he's like all of a sudden become a really good player. He was never that good in the minors. Hmm. 28, 29 years old, he becomes good. I don't know what your hockey equivalent is to that, where a person doesn't hit the, doesn't hit the NHL till they're 28, 29 and then they become better in the NHL than they ever were, you know, in the AHL or the OHL or whatever the minor leagues are. It happens very rarely, but it does happen. Yeah. So that's just one of those, that's one of those examples. Baby Yaz, Mike Yastrzemski just wasn't that good. And they, they, the Giants just had to bring him up because they didn't have anybody else really who was even as good as he was. And all of a sudden he just, and that happens every once just, in a while where, the higher the level is, the better you play because all of a sudden you're not you're facing the the pitchers are going to hit the strike zone. They're not going to throw the ball over the place. So if you're looking for a strike, you're going to get it. Yeah, it seems like he just came into his own a little bit later. Some people mature later uh, in terms of for whatever reason it is, you know. Anyway, okay, Chris, Chris says it would be interesting to see a survey where people named the first player that came to mind when thinking about baseball. It still might be Ken Griffey Jr., 
I could I could see it. I could see it being like that. Okay, Rich, let's. Uh, we spoke about the Milwaukee Bucks a little bit before. I do want to mention if if you guys aren't watching this auction on eBay right now, it's a PWCC auction. They are selling a Giannis and Tedekumpo. I think I said it right. Uh, National Treasures RPA rookie out of ninety nine. And the thing is at 222, it's a BGS 9.5. It's at $222,000 already. I just wanted to mention that because it's happening right now. Five days left on the auction, $222,000, people. That's a lot of money for a, a, an RPA that's less than 10 years old, I think. Anyway, okay. It's not, a, and it's only a fraction of what the trout card sold for, but the trout card is numbered out of one and there's 99 of these Giannis's, but had to mention it because it's happening right now. If anyone has any any thoughts about that, throw it out in the comments. Rich, let's go through some more comments, and then we're going to talk a bit about um, your a few other things that you're doing. So I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Adam says, the appeal of Trout, I think, is he's undoubtedly the best player in almost a decade. Crosby, Ovechkin, Manning, Brady, LeBron, Kobe, Trout. Makes sense to me, Adam. Makes sense to me. Jason says, the Giants brought him, Yaz, up because Jarrett Parker bombed. That's what it often takes is, you know, find that opportunity comes your way when you're least expecting it sometimes. An injury happens and opportunities open up for other people. Simon says, do you think that the trout sale will will mean players like Jordan, LeBron, Ruth, Gretzky, etc. will soon have higher price cards? Quite simply, my answer is yes. Rich, you're nodding in agreement. Ziggy says, you know who is really happy with the trout? 3.9 million. Beckett. Now they have the most expensive card in the world in the BGS 9 sub. I I agree with that. So great segue, Ziggy. You're on fire with the segue tonight because yesterday, I believe, um, yes, uh, yes, yesterday or earlier today. No, this was yesterday. Uh, Eric Norton on Beckett Live Presents had on Ken Golden. Uh, he had on Jeremy Murray from Beckett, and he had on Steve Grad from Beckett Authentication and Pawn Stars. All three of, uh, by the way, all three of his guests he had, and they had the four uh, going at the same time. All three of them are past guests on this show, which I thought was pretty cool when I was watching. And I, I thought of saying, hey, Eric, you're the only one on the screen who hasn't been on my show. Maybe we got to fix that one of these days. And maybe we will. But during that episode, um, that exact point that Ziggy breaks brings up came up among them where I think Steve, Steve must have said to Jeremy something like, you know, you must be pretty pleased now. And what does that mean for Beckett that this card is in your holder? And Jeremy very honestly said it means it means something it's important to us and i think it certainly does and i said it to jim beckett when he was on my show i said and this was before that card sold but it was when the the crosby bgs 10 sold for one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. and i said it's pretty neat that your name is on all these cards that are being flashed all over the media it's pretty pretty cool and now even more so with the with the trout uh, Ziggy says, great show yesterday too. They mentioned the LeBron sold for $1.1 million and no one mentioned it. That's right. Another LeBron sold for $1.1 million. It was the regular out of 99 with the beautiful patch. I forget the grade, but uh, yes, that sold for $1.1 and it wasn't even spoken about because uh, the trout sold for $4 million. Okay. Whew. So, Rich, I have been, uh, you know, after talking to you last night, and I've been familiar with another show on YouTube called Hobby Hotline. These guys, it's, it's, they, they, they build themselves as the only live call-in show, the only live hobby call-in show. It's, it's moderated by a gentleman named Drew. He has a couple of regular guests, I believe. 
the call-in guests. And Rich, you are a regular on this show as I believe a call-in guy that you come in, you come in towards the end, you, you consider yourself the closer, which is really cool because you're such a baseball fanatic. So only appropriate that you give that you have that sort of title for that. But you come in and you guys, these guys talk about what's going on in the hobby. I watched last night's episode um, or Monday night's episode. I think they call it Monday Night Heat, which I love the name. And uh, and I watched this episode and I got to say, I loved it. I and, and Ziggy talks about it all the time on his on his uh, daily show and his, and his, his weekly recaps. And uh, it was highly enjoyable. But I bring it up because you're on that show quite a bit. What, you know, speak a bit about that, your experience on that show. Now you're on this show, you know, you're on the one time here. We'll have you back in, you know, in three to six months kind of thing, hopefully. But speak to uh, to some of the other activities. And in addition to your regular appearance on Hobby Hotline, you're also a very regular guest of Dr. Beckett's on his podcast. So you're really making the rounds. How are you enjoying, as part of your fourth act in the hobby, how are you enjoying all this, um, you know, I don't want to call it attention, but just being able to talk hobby and share your wisdom and knowledge with the community. Well, I was always at Beckett, one of the radio interviewee people. I get up every once in a you know, they, they tried to have various people do it, and I would be one of the people that would do radio interviews, and I would talk to reporters. So on that level, I'm used to it. I ran into an old friend of mine that we had, you know, you were talking about card shows. We had a big card show this weekend here where I can literally walk to from the Comsi office. Nice. I mean, there's nothing like walking nothing, to a card show. Nothing better than that from the office. <laughs> and there's a nice, nice older man named Roger Newfelt, and he was set up, and he was talking about being a podcaster. I can't do that. I said, Roger, have you ever been on the radio? Oh yeah, in the eighties, I had a radio show for like four years. Well, Roger, if you've never done a radio show, you can be a podcaster. Yeah. And so, for me, just being with you is like just except it's visual now is like being on a radio show and I've done it for so long. It's, I don't want to say it's not a big deal because it is, but it's fun to talk to people. It's fun to talk to positive oriented people about the hobby. You're very positive oriented. Dr. Jim is very positive oriented. Uh, Hobby hotline can get into it. The Monday night show had a very passionate discussion about whether or not you should grade cards and the person doesn't does one of the people, Mike Summer, who's really very sharp, doesn't grade cards. And John Newman does send cards in to be graded, and they agree to disagree on what they did. Yeah. And we talked before the show, and one of the great things about grading, and I've been saying this for twenty years, you have a Gretzky seven point five from your original collection, if I remember correctly. Correct. Let's say you sold it to me sight unseen. I have a pretty good idea of what that card's going to look like. I don't have to panic and say, okay, he's saying it's a near mint plus card. When I get it, will it, will, will there be creases in it or will it look like that? No, it'll be a nice looking card. Yeah. So I don't have to worry about whether it's a nice looking card or not, or whether it's, you know, and are they perfect? No, no grading company is perfect because there are no perfect human beings. But they'll get 98, 99% of the cards right. And as such, it's positive to have a card graded. And as you pointed out, now Beckett, now that the Beckett BGS card, if I'm Beckett, I send whatever advertising I can get out tomorrow 
I had to bring you mentioned it. I'm bringing up a scan of my my 7.5 Gretzky rookie. Sorry to, okay, to cut you off hard there. But if I'm Beckett, I get out advertising tomorrow. We now have the highest selling card in the history of the hobby. I do whatever it takes to get publicity out for our grading service. I, I say, hey, look, look, somebody's willing to spend $4 million on a Beckett grading card. Why aren't you sending your cards to Beckett? Yeah. You know, so I'm, I, as Jeremy says, I'm taking advantage of that immediately. I'm not even waiting. I'm, I, you know, I get whatever corporate approval I need and we're hitting it hard. If we hit it hard and we hit it immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool, man. Um, let's, uh, so, so we sort of segued there from, uh, the fact that you're you're out there right now, you're 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 going you're on Hobby Hotline regularly, you're on here now, you're on Dr. Beckett's show. I think it's awesome, Rich. You've got a lot of experience writing for the hobby on on both Sports Collector Daily and now Go GTS or uh, what what the GTS website. Really interesting stuff. So I hope you keep it up, and I hope uh, to continue to see you on on the Hobby Hotline calling in there. Um, I, I, I gotta say, I did enjoy it. I went and uh, I followed those guys on Twitter after, and I subscribed to their channels and. I just um, I'm looking forward to to continuing to watch that show um, Monday nights or if they're going to continue or move it to, to another night. Hopefully, if they move to Saturday, they don't conflict with my show, my Saturday show too much. No, Saturday's a morning show, no conflict. Morning show, perfect. Good to hear. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. So that's great. Um, what do we have here? Uh, Z- yeah, Ziggy made that comment. He says, "Great, great show yesterday too." Though we did that one. Ziggy says, uh, Rich, you're killing it tonight. Can you believe how late it is? Love watching Rich on Hobby Hotline. Another great show, which I definitely agree with. Simon wants to know, uh, is Rich still a collector? If not, why? And what has he collected in the past? Take that one on for a couple minutes, Rich. I am not technically a collector anymore, so to speak, because when I became a full-time dealer, one of the first things I did was break my collection, A, to sell, but B, you should not be a collector if you're a dealer at the same time. And that was full time. So you really shouldn't build a collection. Now, if I had a really high paying job and I was doing vest pocket dealing, I might have kept collecting. But in a way, I do collect. I, you know, there are certain people who went to my high school and college, and there are people who share my birthday. And if I see stuff of theirs cheaply, I'll buy it and sort of stick. I talk about sticking stuff in boxes never to be seen again. I do that. My wife and I got married on Derek Jeter's birthday. So I'm not allowed to have any cards in the living room except for a little shrine to Derek Jeter. Hilarious. And so, I mean, if every once in a while I'll put up, I'll put a new Derek Jeter card in, in the little shrine just, just so I just sort of has some new cards. Okay. And, but I collect in the past, I was complete back to 53 tops when I was doing baseball. I, I had a huge book collection. I collected signed books that helped pay for my wedding. My friend Pat Blanford came from Kevin Savage Cards, and we he paid me some money up front, and I got checks for like the next year afterwards. You know, I, I couldn't move all those books over, so you sell them. But I but I try to always collect a little bit of something because that keeps me attached to what it's like to be a collector. And I mean, if you look at if you look in this office, I'm kind of sort of still a collector. I'm collecting stuff for the synagogue. So, yeah, on one level, I'm still a collector, and I'll always be a collector. But on a, on a personal collection level, they I got asked that on one of the shows. 
there was one major league player from my hometown named Joe Cunningham. He's the only major leaguer from Saddlebrook, New Jersey. His mom used to work in the library, you know, so I, I actually knew his mom fairly well when I was growing up because she was the head librarian. And many years ago, and Ernie and this man, Ernie Montella is no longer living, but really a sweet man. He was an oil company executive in Philadelphia. And one of my Beckett teammates at the time, Theo Chen, I sent Theo, Theo, go see Ernie Montella, hand him these cards he'll, and tell him, give him my address, tell him what it's for. And Ernie, Ernie, you won't even have to tell him what's for Ernie. will get it. Ernie got it. Ernie added like a signed eight by 10 photo. And in 65, there were some little pen and stops added. And he made me a Joe Cunningham plaque. And he was very proud of the work he did. Nice. And he used to publicize it in his catalogs. That oh. It's one of my favorite ones to do. And that will probably, I want to say, get buried with me. It'll be too big to be in the grave. Yeah. But, you know, if I was going to be buried with an item, there would probably be that because it's just such a cool item. So, you know, that would be the last thing I ever sold. Okay. So Paul wants to know, are there any grails? Is there any one item that you covet right now? One item, Rich. One item. We actually talk about that in an upcoming Dr. Beckett episode. Because Grant at Com C asked him about Holy Grail, and I don't want to say it's a Grail because I want to collect it; it's a Grail because I want to find it. Okay, there's hey, a that's fair. Fifty-nine Bill White card that supposedly Larry Fritch says does not have the traded notation on the back. There are four cards in fifty-nine tops that are issued with and without the traded notation, and there's like Billy Lowe's Camilo uh, um uh, not Camilo Pascal is featured on this obscure Washington Senator guy. Then there's a couple other guys. And Bill White has a traded notation on the back of his card number 359. Larry Fritch once claimed, from what I understand, that there's a no trade variation. I always look whenever I see a Bill White card just to see, can I find it? Can I find it? Can I find it? That's a grail card just because I want to find the dollar card. <laughs> well, good luck. And when you do, you got to let us know. Of course, uh, Legion, let everybody know immediately. Legion says, I felt the no cards in the living room comment. I'm sure many of us with significant others have have, have, have experiences similar to that. Uh, uh, Absolute says, Jeremy, referring to your scan, nice, great filing system to use a specific program. I just scan with a scanner and I save my, my images in Dropbox and I... Uh, I just have different uh, folders for different sort of sub PCs. That's how I do that. And then I just na I, I name my files the year and the card number. So that would be 1979018. And if I have more than one copy, I'll go 0.1.2.3, that sort of thing. But, you know, Rich, you made the comment a few minutes ago. You said that I don't think as a dealer you should be a collector too. And I, I have a different angle on that. I don't want to get into it tonight, but I certainly think it's worthy of, an, of a discussion another time, perhaps a, a, you know, a whole episode even on you know, collectors who are dealers too or dealers who are collectors too, because I'm certainly both. I am more collector than dealer, but I love the... Anyway, I, we'll get into that another time. Uh, Sean, welcome to the show. Sean Robb says, what regions of the, do you, of the US do you think have the strongest local card show scenes? Rich, why don't you take that one and then we're going to wrap this up. I think the Megalopolis or the Acela Corridor or whatever you want to call Boston, Boston to Washington is where a great deal of collectors are. But as we see, the Chicago National was strong last year. The Cleveland National was super strong and surprisingly so for Cleveland two years ago. Uh, Kyle Robertson just had, I, I mentioned, a several hundred tables show 
that I could walk to from my office. And he drew maybe 1500 people for the three days. That's pretty strong. Yeah. And, you know, so I think shows are strong in a lot of places. And I think it's kind of cool, but I think the Megalopolis or the Acela Corridor, as I said, is probably still the strongest area. Are either of those in Texas? No, the Acela Corridor is the East Coast. Okay, because Sean asked earlier, and I didn't get to the question, but he asked earlier, he said, what, what do you attribute the strength of the, of the, show, the show or the hobby in, in the Dallas area to? Well, I think the Dallas area, and I've talked to Sean. Sean's come to Dallas. So I, you, yeah, know, you mentioned I that actually, to me last night, yeah. Right. But, but Sean's a really cool guy. We actually had him over for a party. You know, there was he was in town and he didn't have anything else to do. So I invited him over. It was for the Jewish New Year, Rosh okay. Hashanah, and I invited over to the family. I said, "You got nothing else to do. Come on over, come to dinner." And everybody loved him, and so yeah. it was kind of cool. And congratulations! I mentioned that Sean, I believe adopted a child earlier either this year or last year and it's wonderful to see that he got that done before all this yeah and sure. i think you know dallas you've got beckett down here you've got leaf here you have panini here you have heritage auctions here you have a long-term collecting base here you're not that far from houston where tristar is you've got a tradition you have two nationals even though it's 30 years ago now you have the 86 and 90 national in Arlington. So you have a long-term collecting history here. And as such, it's not bad that, hey, it's still a vibrant area. Yeah. Okay. No, very fair. Very fair. Okay. So thanks for that and for addressing Sean's uh, two of his questions. Carlos says, yeah, I thought you might have other thoughts on that, that being a collector and a dealer. Simon says, this seems a whole hobby at the moment is some form of dealer collector. Fair comment. Ziggy says, the best drug dealer is not a collector too. Don't get high on your own supply, but I think most dealers have a little collector in them. I, and I think I think several collectors have a bit of dealer in them too, and that would be uh, my story. Paul mentions, plus a decent sports scene, you know, and you're, you know, you're a state that has several, you know, more than one big city in it. So you've got those, those internal rivalries and all that going too, which is cool in, in, in several sports. So that's, that, that, that that helps as well. You know, it helps to, to breed these sports, these sports fans, which in turn breeds sports collectors. Ziggy says the South Texas and Florida both have high retirement and low or no state taxes and are business friendly. No state taxes does help discretionary income. Okay. Well, Rich, man, I mean, this has been great. Uh, I'm going to ask everybody because Absolute does a great job of reminding me to, um, he says, don't forget to hit the thumbs up button. So if you're watching on YouTube, please hit that thumbs up button. It helps the channel. It helps the show. I don't really understand it, but I understand that it does help. If you haven't subscribed yet to Sports Cards Live, please do. I'd greatly appreciate it. Just hit 1,000 subscribers earlier this week or on the weekend. I want to thank Rich for joining me tonight. I also want to thank Rich for, pub for pub publicizing your appearance on the show tonight and for any new viewers that came to watch because Rich was on. I welcome you to the show, and I thank Rich for, for bringing you to see this show I hope you stick around, catch more episodes in the future. Uh, I want to, I'll point you to, because I'm Carlos's YouTube channel, check that out. Point you to Ziggy Knows YouTube channel, check that out. And um, anyone else who's out there that has one that's watching, if you want to make a quick comment, I will shout you out as well right now. Coming up on Saturday, my guest for Saturday Night Sports Cards Live is, is still, I'm working on it, but the after hours is uh, planned with uh, youngster Charles, who's a vintage collector. We're going to hang out and we're going to give you guys a perspective on 
what it's like to being 14 years old and having a channel of your own. Uh, sorry, uh, being 14 years old and collecting vintage cards. I'll shout out the card collector, another youngster who I just discovered on YouTube the other day. I don't know how old you are, but you're certainly young man. So welcome uh, to the hobby if you're newer and uh, keep on doing what you're doing with your content. Eric Stefano, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Simon says, thank you, Rich. Ziggy says, thank you both again for a great show. Thumbs up here. Thank you, Ziggy. All right, guys, Rich, parting comments from you. And then uh, wanna, I'm going to do a final thank you. And we'll, we'll hit the end, end broadcast button. Enjoy the hobby. It's a fun ride. And understand that you may not get what you want, but it's okay because there's always something else coming out. And if, you know, there's always a way to do something and just don't panic and don't. And if you don't want to do what everybody else does, that's okay too. And I'll add to that. Well said, Rich. I'll add to that. Collect what you like. And, you know, Rich is a sign, is a symbol that, you know, you can do this your whole life. You can be in the hobby from the age of 14 to whenever the end of that happens to be. I'm not going to shout any ages, but you can do it from 14 to 84. Doesn't matter. 14 to 104. You can do it from eight until anyway. You get you get the you get my point here, guys. Legion, Legion, thank you for the round of applause. DPM Sports Cards, thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us, Simon. Another excellent two hours well spent, Jeremy. Thank you for joining, Simon. Ah, it's the card collector's belated birthday. Happy birthday to you. You're absolute. Thank you for joining. Thank you for supporting the channel. Absolute. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for a great show. You are welcome, Paul. You're on the loquacious uh, binge tonight. Thank you for joining as always. Bill, welcome. Didn't know you were there, Bill. Glad to see you. Great insight into the long history of the hobby. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining. Good job. Thank you, Carlos. House phone. Haven't seen you before. Welcome to the show. Thank you and good night as well to you. Adam says, great show. See you Saturday. Probably on, maybe on Hobby. Oh, see you Saturday on my show. We'll, we'll be having shows here on Saturday. Duh. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Jeff McMahon. Thank you so much. Guys, everybody, Rich, thanks again for joining. Everyone out there, thank you so much for tuning in. Rich, don't go anywhere right yet. I'll say goodbye to you in the back room. Everybody, we'll see you on Saturday. Have a great rest of your week. Peace out. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.